0: good evening everyone can you hear me well all right so there are defining moments in our lives defining events it could be the day that you got married or the day that you chose your career or it could be the day that you lost a loved one but looking back at these defining events and defining moments in our lives we recognize that from that event or moment onwards Everything, the way we saw the world around us changed, and the way we lived out the human experience changed. Now, in my case, a defining event in my life was when I applied to Karen University back in some fateful day in November 2017. And the implications of that choice bear upon me even to this present hour. Similarly, scripture is full of defining events whether it's God calling Abraham and creating a chosen people for himself, or whether it's uh, exodus from Egypt or exile to Babylon or exile from Babylon, these defining events have shaped faith history as we know it. Now, another defining event, and the one that we're focusing on this weekend, is the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This defining event is constituted of smaller and micro events that constitute this larger term, death and resurrection of the Lord. And in my opinion, this is the most significant defining event in all of faith history because it marks the end of one era and the dawn of a new age. There's a paradigm shift that occurs in faith history in the death and resurrection of our Lord. Now, like I said, it's constituted of uh, smaller micro events. so. There is the trials of Christ, and there's the flogging. Then there is the crucifixion, the sayings of Christ on the cross, the death of Christ, and then eventually his resurrection. And back in December, when I had the privilege of speaking during communion, I addressed the silence of Christ during his trials. This evening, I will be focusing on the tearing of the veil and the significance of that in the larger redemptive story. To start off, I'm going to be reading from Mark 15, verses 33 to 39. So if you would please turn with me there. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour... Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, in this passage alone, there are multiple uh, elements that we can focus on this evening, but I have chosen the element of tearing the veil and the significance of that element in the larger New Testament context. So there are going to be three questions that I'm planning to raise this evening. And the first question that I want to raise is, what is the purpose of the veil? Because let's say you grew up in the church and you are familiar with uh, Sunday school stories. You know very well what the veil is, but what if it's just your, this is your first time reading this passage? And what if you're a new believer or even an unbeliever? How would you understand what the veil is? And to understand that we must first look at the Old Testament context, where we find the origins of the veil, And to understand what the veil is, we have to look at the tabernacle and the temple where God instituted this veil. And the veil was so pretty much in the tabernacle and in the temple, there was the outer court, there was the holy place, and then there was the holy of holies. And God would institute the veil to separate the holy of holies from the holy place. And the holy of holies was where God's manifest presence was found. And the high priest is allowed in there once a year. And we'll get to that later, but the reason why God institutes the, the, the veil or in the tab- tabernacle and eventually in the temple is because that veil is a, it is a physical manifestation of a spiritual reality. And what do I mean by that? Because the veil itself is rep- representing something that's already occurred, and it speaks of the human condition. And we see this in Genesis 3, where God kicks Adam and Eve, or expels them from the garden and he puts the uh, cherubim with a flaming sword there to guard the entry now you say but that's not a veil or a curtain yeah it doesn't have to be a veil a curtain it could even be a rock what's the purpose of that element that element serves to it functions in the role as a barrier separating God's manifest presence from fallen humanity So that's why what God instituted in Genesis 3 with a flaming sword at the Garden of Eden, he he, uh, reinstitutes that element in the tabernacle and eventually in the temple. So now, um, to look at that, there's a verse in Hebrews 8, 5, where it speaks to this. They serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that we have shown you on the mountain, that was shown to you on the mountain. And so the veil, when God institutes it in the tabernacle and eventually in the temple, they serve as, um, like I mentioned, it's a physical manifestation that's speaking of a pre existing spiritual reality that describes the human condition. And so now we have come to understand what's the purpose of the veil. We must raise the next question Why did God tear the veil? Because There's a reason why he tore the veil. And to understand why God tore the veil, we have to look at the role of the high priest and the role of sacrifices and how they functioned within the Mosaic economy. So the high priest, he served as a mediator between the people of Israel and God. And he was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies once a year to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And the high priest, he would go in there, he would sprinkle the blood, and the sins of the people would be atoned for, for one year. He has to do this annually. Every single year, he repeats this process of offering sacrifices unto God. Now, some would say, okay, the, these sacrifices, why, do, why does it have to be that way? Why does it have to be like all this blood and animal blood, animal cruelty? There's a reason why. Because when God in, when God created the natural world, he had... Put a law in place where it says, without in Hebrews uh, nine twenty two, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. And the reason that's the case is because Leviticus seventeen eleven, life is in the blood. And so, when an animal is uh, when an animal is killed and the blood of that animal is shed, what's essentially happening is the life of that animal is being shed. And so. That animal is being sentenced to death and the sentence that was supposed to be yours, the sentence of death, because the wages of sin is death it's being transferred onto that animal. And so the animal experiences the sentence that you and I deserve. Well, not technically us, but the people of Israel. So that animal dies and the sins of the people are atoned for. Okay, so he does this every single year and people have all other sacrifices that God puts it within the Mosaic economy. Now, we get to... The Christ, because in addition to serving in the role as High Priest, in adi- I mean, in, di- in addition to being the Messiah, in addition to being the Son of God, in addition to being God Himself, Christ also functions in this role as High Priest. And since He functions in this role as High Priest, He must offer sacrifices. And He offers sacrifices on behalf of the people whom He represents. That's us the people who have put faith in Christ. And so when he offers sacrifices unto God, this is where we face a dilemma because does Christ have to go in there every single year and keep repeating these sacrifices? Because Christ does not do that. And there's a reason why Christ does not repeat his sacrifice every single year. Because, and this is how I came to understand it when I was preparing for this message, the, the animals and the high priest in the, in the Levite priesthood, they were... Uh, They're confined to time and space; they're temporal creatures. So, whatever they, whatever uh, sacrifice they do, it's only for a limited time. So they have to keep repeating these sacrifices. But Christ, having no beginning, having no end, He is eternal. Meaning, whatever sacrifice that He offers will stand for all eternity. So now we get to this thing, because the sacrifice. So, in addition to Christ being the high priest, being eternal, the sacrifice also must be eternal. That's, a, that's going to be a problem, because there is no animal that's eternal. The only, in fact, the only, only being in all of creation that's eternal is God. God only meets the criteria for not having a beginning or an end. And so, when that, whatever is being laid on that altar, in order for that sacrifice and its effects to be permanent and eternal, the, sacri- the sacrificial animal must also be of an eternal nature. And so now we have a dilemma because God cannot offer an animal, Christ cannot offer an animal unto God. So instead what Christ does is He offers Himself, God offering Himself unto Himself for Himself. And so God, so God in the person of Christ offers Himself, He takes the penalty of sin, He, he, he receives the sentence that you and I deserve which is death. And in shedding His blood, and essentially shedding His life, what Christ does is, he, is that He atones for the sins of the people that believe in Him. And so now, we get to the understanding of why God tore the veil. Because remember why, why I said that God, God, tore, God instituted the veil. God instituted the veil because of the sins of fallen humanity. And so, because God's nature and human nature are, cannot mix, and the way to see it is like this. If My hand is made of certain elements, flesh and bone, and fire is constituted of different elements. Now, my hand and the fire cannot mix, and if I try to put my hand in the fire, I'm not going to have a good day. It's just because they're two contrary elements. Now, God's holiness is fire, if you could see it like that. And humanity, fallen humanity, is twigs, it's wood, they cannot mix. And so, because of sin, humanity has been separated. And unless their sins are atoned for, they cannot approach a holy God. And so when Christ goes into the veil and he offers himself as a perfect sacrifice, as an eternal sacrifice, the effects of that sacrifice stand for all eternity. And so when Christ does that, and the sins of, and so if what separated God and fallen humanity was sin, and their sins have been atoned for, then what's the purpose of the veil? Because the veil was put in place to separate, it was a barrier to divide fallen humanity and God, But now that your sins have been atoned for, we don't need this veil. We can do away with it. And that's essentially what happens. Because what Christ does is, He tears down the veil in the realm of the Spirit. He's In the spiritual uh, heavenlies, He tears down the uh, veil. And it's just a matter of time that it physically manifests. And that's what we read in Mark 15. The The curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. So is that like what, like we mentioned earlier. The veil was instituted because it was a physical manifestation of a spiritual reality. So when the curtain in the uh, temple is being torn from top to bottom, that's a physical manifestation of a new and and better spiritual reality. So you're no longer separated from God. And this leads us to the third question of the evening. And the third question is this. What difference does tearing the veil make? And this is a... uh, a really important question because it allows us to see what Christ has achieved in his atoning work what Christ has done in tearing the veil and to better understand that i would like if we if we could all turn to hebrews hebrews 10 verse 19 to 25 therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of jesus by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting the meet, to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So in this passage alone, we see the results of what Christ has achieved in tearing the veil. So the first thing is that we, can, we have to recognize that we, are, we have become God's children. That's the first thing in Christ tearing the veil. That's one of the first results. So what does that mean? What does it mean that we recognize that we're God's children? And he, the way that I've understood it is, in fact, I'm going to tell you a quick story, because uh, a few weeks ago, when I was cleaning out there, I saw Pastor John. He was talking to an older gentleman, and his children come running right up to him. So that's not, that's not interesting. But you'll see why, it's, uh, why it caught my eye, that, that whole scene. It's because he was having a conversation, and adults, we like, okay, if you're talking with somebody else, we shouldn't, like, we should wait our turn, unless it's urgent, we don't approach somebody. We wait until that conversation is over, and then we go and talk. But you notice your own kids don't think like that. They feel that they can approach you at any time, at any place, it doesn't matter who, how important of a person you're talking to, they just interrupt. But you see, and why do, why do children do that? And we read that it's because they have confidence. They have a sense of boldness that they can approach their parent at any time. And nothing's going to happen to them. And in fact, the word that's used in Hebrews 10, uh, Hebrews 10, 19, since we have confidence in the original language, that word can also be understood as boldness. In fact, it gets even better because it's not just boldness. It's boldness in the presence of someone of a higher rank. So to have boldness in the presence of someone of a higher rank, you must be related to that person. And so what this passage is getting at, and in fact what Christ has achieved in tearing the veil is this, that we have boldness to come before God, and a boldness that cannot be, that no other creature in all of creation has. Not even, that we read about these past few weeks about the throne room and all the angels that are crying, holy, 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 but they don't have the boldness that God has given to his children to approach him at any time, at any place. And... That's the boldness that we have, and that's the first thing we have to recognize. In Christ tearing the veil, we have become God's children. And the second thing that we have to recognize is this. It says, let us us, uh, hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. And that's the second thing that we have to recognize. In Christ tearing the veil. What does that mean? Persevering as God's children in the face of opposition, whether it be external or internal. Now... I don't know about others, but my Christian life has not been perfect since I was born again. And you have these great ambitions when you're born again, I'm going to live all perfect and nothing. I'm never going to screw up. But then you find out that in a span of a year, you've screwed up royally in many ways. And that's normal. It's, it's not something that I'm, I'm shying away from. It's, some, it's a reality that we accept as we grow older. But I don't know about you guys, I might be the only one who's done this, but when you first start out, you play hide and seek with God like you try to hide from God anytime you screw up. I did that. So I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> yeah, so but then as I've gotten older and I've become more mature, I realized like that's not the right approach. And the reason I can say that is because when you understand God's nature and you foster a relationship with him, you understand this God is not like some vindictive pagan deity with a lightning bolt ready to strike you at any wrong turn you may take. But the scripture says, 1 John 1 if we repent, he's faithful to forgive. Draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. We can approach God boldly. That's scripture's representation of God. But we create like these ideas in our minds oh, God doesn't, God hates me. Well, if God hates you and you feel that sitting here tonight, we would not be gathering here tonight if God hated you. We are gathering here to commemorate an event because God loved you, because God loved you so deeply. That, and and this, it, we, this idea that God likes me today and He hates my guts tomorrow, that's human behavior. That's not God, divine nature. But we have these ideas of who God is. But then when you grow in a relationship with God and you foster and you know Him more, you realize that God is waiting like the prodigal son's father, waiting with His arms wide open for us to return to Him. That He's willing to receive us any time that we come to Him. And that's, who God's, that's God's nature. And Christ did that in His life on earth. Through the parables and ultimately through his death, he revealed God's nature and the deep love that God has for every single one of us. And so this gets us to the third point, which is to encourage others and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And what this pretty much this is saying is to reach out to others as God's children. Now, another mistake that I... Well, makes one of the mistakes. Another mistake that I made is that Starting out, like, if people wrong you, right, especially Christians, if they're wrong you, you, got, you have this idea, like, screw them all. Like, I'm just going to be me and Jesus till the end. I've done that. And in fact, it was till last year I was like that. But then I realized, wait a minute, that's, that's wrong. That's not, that's not a right approach. Because the, the Christian faith functions in a corporate context. It functions in relationships and with others. You can't just be like, it's me and God till the end. And so because our relationship with God is functions in the context of other people, what we have to do is we encourage others, we stimulate others to love and to good works. And how do we do that? Remember how I said there's an outer court, holy place, holy of holies? So if you see a brother or sister, you know, who's on the outer court, just for whatever reason, even if they're a believer, they can be on the outer court. How is that possible? Guilt, shame, condemnation, depression, whatever it might be, they stay on the outer court because they feel that they are not good enough to approach God. And as believers, it's our duty and our obligation to reach out to them, to encourage them, stimulate them to love and to good works. And that's our duty. And that's what this passage is getting at here. And so we looked at that. And in doing these three things, recognizing we're God's children because Christ has torn the veil, persevering as God's children in the face of opposition, and reaching out to others as God's children, and in doing all these three things, we're able to live out the implications of Christ's atoning work and in Him tearing the veil. So, as we come to a close this evening on this message, I want us to all deeply meditate and to reflect these truths. Let, it, let the redeeming power of Christ's love transform our hearts. Let us draw near to Him with confidence, knowing that we're His child, that we don't have to stand on the outer courts, that we can approach Him with confidence and with boldness, And let us recognize that Scripture, after Christ's death, puts out this call to experience Him, to experience God. Life with God beyond the veil is the gospel call. So let's close in prayer. Loving Father, I hope you're doing well this evening. I know today commemorates 2,000 years since you sent your son for us. I can't imagine what you must have felt that day as you saw your son brutally treated. I don't know how you must have felt or how you endured that pain, but thank you for doing that. Thank you for allowing that because in doing that, you have shown that you loved us, Father, You have shown the deep love that you have for every single one of us. And that we can come before you now as your children because of that. Loving Father, thank you that we can access your throne, but we don't want your throne. We want to know you, the only true God, and Christ Jesus whom you have sent. Thank you, Holy Father, Let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.